0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric, and I'm here with my co-host, Theo. What do we got today, Theo?
1: So we're going to talk about a really important period of time in Giants franchise history, which occurred during the 2004 NFL offseason. Mm-hmm. Coming off of a 4-12 record, uh, drastic measures needed to take place. Head coach Jim Fossil was let go prior to the conclusion of the 2003 season, and general manager Ernie Accorsi was tasked with finding his replacement. So we had sort of covered this in previous episodes. You know, Fassel had brought them to Super Bowl 2000. Mm -hmm. You know, up until that point, he was the most successful coach aside from Bill Parcell.
0: Exactly. And then you mentioned that Accorsi had come in for George Young was that in 90, the late 90s?
1: Yes, it was in, it was in 1998. Right, okay. But Jim Fossil was already there at that point in time. So right. not long after the search began, the Giants would eventually welcome Tom Coughlin, as we know, mm-hmm. former head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. The organization also held the fourth overall pick that year because of their poor performance in a draft heavily loaded at the quarterback position. So as you know, the three top quarterback prospects poised to take the next step. Were Ben Roethlisberger, who was from the University of Miami of Ohio, Phil Rivers, quarterback of NC State, and Eli Manning, son of Archie Manning, New Orleans Saints great, yep, famous for quarterbacking Ole Miss, and brother to Peyton Manning, who at the time in two thousand and four was just ripping it. You know, two thousand and four would actually end up being his MVP season, and it would just mark him as like the best quarterback the league has seen. As far,
0: yes. And Peyton Manning, best known for his work in the Papa John's commercials, <laughs> and uh, what is it, State for? Yeah, some other insurance or whatever. You know, that's what he's most famous for.
1: Most famous that. <laughs> so for that. So, of course, he, having worked in many organizations that stress the importance of the quarterback position, he would target a quarterback early and would ultimately walk away with Eli Manning, the highest-rated prospect of the three even though they had the fourth pick. Pairing Eli with Coughlin would eventually lead to years of success for the Mm G-Men. But before we look into the drama that took place that offseason, I think it would be best to start with the story by going back in time and examining the orchestrator himself, Ernie Corsi. Remember how we had mentioned that after years of sucking, the Mars eventually reshaped the franchise by hiring general manager George Young?
0: Yeah, that was after the... First miracle at the Meadowlands.
1: Yeah, so like it was at about 1979. Yeah. The Moras were feuding. They couldn't figure out what to do next. They ended up going to the commissioner and he recommended George Young, who was with the Miami Dolphins, I believe, at the time.
0: Yeah, he was. Yeah.
1: Young enjoyed a great run throughout the 1980s. Well, primarily because he was alongside Bill Parcells. Mm-hmm. But after Parcells left the franchise, he couldn't replicate similar success. Throughout the 1990s so his first big mistake was hiring ray handley as Parcells' replacement so we had talked about that after Parcells retired the franchise was sort of in an influx Parcells had retired without giving a long extended notice mm-hmm. and you know it was very possible at one point in time that bill palachuk could have been the head coach of the giants yes but even george young didn't really like him you know he didn't really see him as a fit to lead the giants young not only had an unsuccessful time with Ray Handley, mm-hmm. but he appeared to have a rocky relationship with the following hire, which was Dan Reeves. Mm-hmm. Both of whom wanted more control over the roster. So, aside from issues with head coaches, George Young started to struggle building a roster during the transitional time of the NFL, which was the nineteen nineties. The nineties marked a new era of free agency, which radically changed the way rosters were put together. So unrestricted free agency began in 1993 and a salary cap was implemented later on in 1994. All of a sudden you had a situation where teams that were really dominant, you know, you had like the classic dynasties, like the 49ers, they couldn't just stockpile talent anymore. Up until that point, the closest thing to free agency was this thing called Plan B, which started in 1989. The rule was that teams could protect their top 37 players on a roster and the remaining bunch would be subject to free agency
0: oh my god I mean like we'd mentioned it before too but like in the stories of Jeff Hostetler and Phil Sims there are quite a few instances or at least one for each of those guys where I can remember them demanding a trade from the front office and the front office was just like no You know, no, (laughs) no, we're (laughs) keeping you. Like, there's nothing you can do. You sign the contract. So, wow, basically more than half of their roster (laughs) not becoming free agents. That's...
1: It's not to say that the bottom half, you know, after the 37, there wasn't a few gems that you could find, but the top 37 players, you know, you could build a dynasty off of them.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: What ended up happening was that there was a lawsuit held and it was led by a New York Jets running back, Freeman McNeil. So Uh this is probably the most important thing a Jets player has done.
0: (laughs) Most impact he's had on the NFL.
1: (laughs) (laughs) For the last like 50 years. (laughs) It was filed alongside seven other players against plan B and a federal jury ruled that in 1992 it violated antitrust laws. This prompted team owners and the NFL PA to come to some sort of negotiation. Mm -hmm. And in 1993, They had agreed to free agency in exchange for a salary cap to maintain competitive balance, Right, which is fair, right? To a certain extent, you can argue the pros and cons of both. I'd say in a sport like soccer, there is no salary cap. Mm
0: -hmm. You know,
1: you have a a larger pool of teams. But in a situation like the NFL, if there is no salary cap, you know, Jerry Jones is dominated the league each and every year.
0: Right, exactly. I agree when... When it's what more happened? of a world Jack- game, like in soccer, you don't necessarily need a salary cap, but yeah, NFL is pretty specific on a world scale, you know, it's all American teams, so it makes sense.
1: What would a team like Jacksonville do that doesn't attract as many crowds as the Dallas Cowboys, right?
0: Yeah, I don't know.
1: In the NFL, there's only 32 teams and there's a stress on parity, there's a stress on being able to renew your franchise each and every year to win the big one. Mm-hmm. In the sport like soccer, it's just there are teams that are just generally small, and their goal is not to win the trophy. It's to finish within a certain area of the league table. Right, right? exactly. Fifth or sixth could be a goal each and every year. But
0: and there are financial incentives for that in terms of you know actual incentives from the league and then TV contracts and yada, yada, yada.
1: There's, like, a sort of floor and ceiling that certain soccer teams just have to reach for each and every year yeah. because of the of their team, you know? Exactly. Off of that, Reggie White ends up becoming the first-time big free agent signing, signing a four-year, $17 million contract with the Packers. you ever hear the story about that? Like, why the Packers believe Reggie White ended up signing for them? Didn't it come to him in a dream or something? What happened was Reggie White was a really religious man and Mike Holmgren ended up calling Reggie White and saying that this was a god and (laughs) needed to come to the Packers (laughs) which I believe you know it's all tongue-in-cheek it's all it's sort of a joke but yeah I feel like it's the story that we are made to believe
0: I mean that's fair Uh, it does make for a nice story and then uh, Reggie White would actually go on to win the Super Bowl with the Packers later on if you look at that game i forget even the tackle that he played against in that super bowl but apparently he was a huge had a huge impact in that game so they were actually the ones i think parcells was the coach of the patriots at that point too that lost to reggie white and the packers in the super
1: bowl yes he was (laughs) there you go which goes to show you how good parcells is of a coach where he can bring you know at the time the patriots were no dynasty like they were in the 2000s exactly as we had said, free agency starts in 93, mm-hmm. salary cap comes in in 1994. So that same year, George Young offers a man named Ernie Corsi the job of assistant general manager. Corsi was currently working in baseball, actually. He wasn't even in the NFL anymore with the Baltimore Orioles, but he had a lot of experience working in the NFL. So mm-hmm. he previously worked under Young and the assistant, Harry Humes. All three have ties to uh, the Baltimore Colts organization. He was brought on to actually help deal with this new situation. I actually have a quote from an article at the time of his hire. Of course, he will continue to share a residence in the area with his son, Michael, but expects to join the Giants within the week. No doubt, he'll have a responsibility of monitoring the new salary cap that has been implemented in the NFL. Plus, working with Young and Humes on the various aspects of front office administration, both in a business and a football way.
0: Hmm.
1: You can see that he was sort of pegged to do a lot of the underlying responsibilities, right. you know, and it sort of makes sense that he was groomed into this position eventually as title of official general manager. And just a little bit of background on Ernie Coursi. So coming out of college, of course, actually took on a few sports writing gigs. He was into journalism, which eventually led to athletic administration positions in college. hmm and he worked for Penn State. That eventually led to Johnson in the NFL. He worked on the PR staff with the Colts, but before leaving for Major League Baseball, his most notable position was a former general manager for the Colts from 1982 to 1983. Right. And also with the Cleveland Browns from 1985 till 1992, okay. which we'll talk about in later seasons. You we cover other teams, but... The early 90s of the Browns were an important part of NFL history because those were the learning years of one Bill Belichick. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where he built the foundations of his scouting system and team building exercises. So of course he was actually building the Browns alongside Bill Belichick, but then left in 1992 1990s he went, was replaced by one Michael Lombardi,
0: uh-huh. shout out
1: to the GM Shuffle. Yeah. Shout out Great. to the GM oh, Shuffle. Yeah. time right now Mm -hmm. while he was with those different teams he recognized the importance of the QB position which I had mentioned earlier especially when he was on the PR staff in Baltimore he worked alongside Johnny Unitas you know he saw one of the great quarterbacks of NFL history Johnny
0: Unitas actually was the quarterback of the Colts when they played against the Giants and beat them in the Super Bowl the greatest game ever played
1: <laughs> so there's another sense. connection right there there you go and I have a quote by 1983 after a course he had worked his way up to general manager he also advised owner Bob Ursay to draft John Elway despite John Elway's protests. The Colts then traded Elway to Denver Of course he resigned suspecting Ursay would soon move the team to Indianapolis, which he eventually did mm-hmm So, yeah, at that point, in the 1983 draft, if people aren't familiar with it, you know, that was a a star-studded draft. Dan Marino ends up coming out.
0: John Elway and Dan Marino were, like, the two biggest ones, right?
1: And you had Jim Kelly as well. The most important part was that John Elway was the top-rated quarterback in that draft, and he did not want to go to the Baltimore Colts, and... He made it pretty clear through the media that it wasn't going to happen. Right. Colts end up drafting him anyways. And then they end up, through some measure, forcing a trade. And he makes his way onto the Denver roster. Right. So this is interesting because there's a parallel to this in 2004 when the Giants end up receiving Eli Manning, who they actually do not draft. He ends up being drafted first overall by San Diego. But we'll get more into that later on. Mm-hmm. Besides his time in Indianapolis, he also arranged for the drafting of Bernie Kozar in the supplemental draft. Mm-hmm. The Browns got to three AFC Championship games, but they would also fall short to Elway and the Broncos. You saw this like constant theme where he understood that that position needed to be taken care of. Yeah, And in 1997, George Young would eventually depart from his position as general manager. In the 1998 season, of course, he was promoted to that same position. So fast forward to 2004. a had already been general manager for six years. Mm-hmm. And he has to fill a vacancy left by Jim Fassel. His first phone call actually does go to Tom Coughlin. He recognized him for his disciplinarian attitude, appreciated his coaching style. Mm-hmm. So he interviewed a few other candidates, one of whom was Nick Saban. They quickly offered Coughlin the job as soon as Nick... Saban declined further pursuit mm-hmm. So Coughlin was 57 at the time of hire, which is sort of insane because I've just come to realize how old he actually is right now yeah. and that's so interesting because like his greatest success has been with the Giants and it's that much later in life that he's that much older and that's when he starts the highlight of his NFL career
0: right exactly I mean yeah you peak pretty late as a head coach. The hiring of, let's say, like a Sean McVay is the one example that I can think of, where he's like 34 years old. I mean, that doesn't necessarily happen as much in the NFL. The NFL is very much, you know, a meritocracy in that you need to take your lumps and pay your dues and kind of work your way up through, you know, being a position coach to working in front offices uh, in other positions before you're actually trusted to become a head coach. Uh, and that day
1: may never come, actually. Exactly. They get pegged for a head coaching position, you know? Right. So, yeah, the Giants had also interviewed a few notable candidates, which was Romeo Cronell, Charlie Weiss, and Rams defensive coordinator, Lovie Smith, hmm. all of whom have had a pretty big impact in the NFL.
0: There you go. And Romeo Cornell is still the, well, currently the interim head coach of the Houston Texans after they fired Bill O'Brien this year.
1: So Coughlin ends up signing a four-year, $11 million contract. At the time of his hire, he says it is a tremendous challenge and I'm looking forward to working with these players and reestablishing the New York Giants tradition of physically controlling the line of scrimmage. Want to win the battle at the line of scrimmage? Eliminate the disease of turnovers. Oh, boy and control field position on special teams. Does that sound like Coughlin, or does that sound like Bill Parcells?
0: (laughs) I mean, you can definitely tell where he got his ideas from. I mean, all those guys came up around Parcells, so I'm not surprised at all that there are some parallels there. Working
1: with Parcells as a wide receiver coach, you know, being sort of groomed in that system, the importance of not beating yourself, you can tell is a first priority Mm -hmm. for Tom Coughlin. Wellington Mars says at the time of the hire, Tom Coughlin is the right person for the job. He has experience as a successful head coach at the college and NFL levels, and he's going to bring an intensity and focus and the commitment to winning that we need and want. We stayed true to a process and we felt we could produce the kind of head coach we need, and it did. Coughlin's downfall in Jacksonville actually came after him steadily losing during three consecutive seasons which was largely attributed to him being the head coach and the general manager as well. Right. So like a lot of mistakes on the personnel side. And in this situation, he would have input on the 53, but wouldn't have total control.
0: Right. And it goes total- back to that same discussion that we had earlier. Can somebody reasonably be expected to be the head coach and the GM of a franchise? Like it's a lot to put on somebody's plate.
1: Exactly, and, you know, Coughlin, I guess, just wasn't meant to do both. Some coaches, like Belichick and Parcells, are much better at it. Sure. But he did have say. Of course, he says at the time of his hire, he goes, Tom Coughlin is a man we wanted 11 years ago, and he is a man we wanted now. Aside from his family, Tom has one interest, winning. What he means by the 11 years is that at the time of them hiring Dan Reeves, Coughlin was actually the priority. Mm Mm-hmm. He was at Boston College and didn't want to leave for the NFL. Mm-hmm. Times just overlapped and he eventually did go to the NFL, but it was with the Jacksonville Jaguars. You know, and at that time the Giants didn't have a vacancy and now it sort of just like fit right in perfectly. Right. Yeah. So now the Giants have their leader, they have their head coach all secured. And now we move on to the draft portion of the off season. Much like how John Elway did not want to be drafted by the Baltimore Colts in 1983, projected first overall pick Eli Manning had his reservations about the team holding the top spot. The San Diego Chargers were a potential quicksand situation, and it was known beforehand how he very much did not want to be drafted by them. Mm -hmm. We'll leave this episode at that right now, and we'll get into it in further detail on the next episode of Checkdown Charlies.
0: Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlies podcast.
1: Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean.
0: Don't forget to follow us at Charlie's on Twitter and at CheckdownCharlies on Instagram.
1: Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms. And don't forget to leave us a review.
0: Until next time, thanks for tuning in.